There you go. <laughs> I must admit, when I got my uh, topic for this morning, I was a little bit nervous. Then I saw the other topics, and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, singleness, much like the gift of martyrdom, it's not something I've personally prayed for, either for myself or for anybody else. Um, it was certainly not my gift. I was rubbish at it. Epic failure. I had to go and get married. Um, so when Rosina got hold of me and said, uh, you know, would you mind preaching on singleness? I turned to the guy at the desk next to me at my office. I won't mention any names. And I said to him, Gareth, they've asked, <laughs> they've asked me to preach on singleness. And so he gave me my three-point sermon. He's like, well, that's easy. Just point to the verse that says there are many fish in the sea. And then tell them that uh, God's got somebody specifically for them, and they need to wait patiently for that person. And then tell them that while they're waiting, they need to make sure that they're preparing themselves to be the best spouse ever. Job has better friends than I have. <laughs> so I sought other advice, clearly. And I got my Bible app completely confused because I went from devotions on being a good husband and devotions on being a good father to devotions like singleness shouldn't suck and the sacredness of singleness. Jokes aside, I've been deliberately tactless to make a point. I'm fully aware of the sensitivities and the hurts around this subject. Fortunately, when I prep a message, I tap into experts and the Bible is full of them. I need look no further than our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, Martha, Jeremiah, John the Baptizer. I also chatted to single friends. My mother's best friend, Bonnie, is 70 years old, has been single her, her whole life and has taught on this topic many times as a missionary. And uh, I'm also using John Tyson's message from Bridgetown Church as a reference, as we have been doing throughout this series. So if you are here today, and you are single, or you're listening online, I'm not going to pretend to understand the uniqueness of your situation. And each situation is unique. Some of you are incredibly content in your singleness. But for others, this is not a chosen journey. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're currently going through. I've listened to broken friends who, in their 40s, 50s, cannot understand why they haven't found a partner, a marriage partner. But I've also prayed with friends broken by the devastation caused by divorce, and I've prayed with friends whose marriage partners have passed away. Like many of the topics in this, uh, this on sexuality, this isn't an easy one for us to get our heads around. But the Bible speaks to single people and speaks in some detail, and the news is good. It's encouraging, it's empowering, and I hope your takeaway from today's message is supportive, that it's liberating, and that it's motivating. And to those who have a ring on it, this message is for you too. So much of the hurt and the perceived shame and the frustration around singleness is projected by married people who really have not grasped a biblical view on singleness or have made any effort at all. We're in the third of six sessions in our series on God and sexuality. And today I'm talking to you as a pastor would to a community of Christ followers 
and believers. If that's not you, if you're still exploring the claims of Christ, if you're still in a different part of the journey and you're looking in, I, I really hope there's stuff you get out of this. But that's really the context on, on where I'm speaking today. The topic is complex and it's sensitive and it raises questions in the hearts and minds of single people around self-worth, self-worth, around when or how am I meant to be seeking out a spouse, if at all? Questions like, am I going to pass beyond desirability in our youth-obsessed culture? There's nobody for me in my church. Should I be moving churches? Should I join another church? Am I destined to be lonely forever? What does the Bible say about Tinder? I'm so lonely, should I date somebody who doesn't know or love Jesus? Some of you even query the legitimacy of marriage based on devastation that you've experienced in your life and amongst friends or, or family members close to you. Maybe even your own parents have been divorced. Some of you have been married and now you find yourself later in life single. And that comes with its own questions and challenges. Did you know that the age group 16 to 24-year-olds are the loneliest on the planet? This current generation will live their lives as single longer than any previous generation ever. And of course, more and more people are having sex before marriage to see if they are compatible. In the US, research states that 3% of the population, 3% of the population will save their sex lives for marriage. This despite the evidence, just this week in the Wall Street Journal, which I've recently subscribed to because it's got some pretty good articles, they released an article about cohabiting before marriage. This was just this week, and you should dig out the article. It's got a lot of interesting research in there by psychologists and statisticians and everybody with all the stats that they have access to nowadays. It's, it's fascinating. And they present a string of findings, and this is their conclusion at the end of the article. This is a secular article. What is clear is this. If you're a young woman thinking about getting married but worried about divorce, and they end with don't move in with anyone until your wedding day. Statistically, your marriage won't last. 25% of the population, a quarter of the population, have now chosen to remain single. And yet, despite the whole sexual revolution and marriage not being a major priority in many sectors of society and our culture, there is still a massive amount of anxiety around singleness in society. So to set the scene, let's unpack why. Let's explore a few of the cultural stories, a few of the dominant narratives that we have believed, absorbed. What are those elements of our culture that have shaped us predominantly unconsciously that give rise to the emotions and the desires and maybe even the moral questions we might have regarding singleness? The first is the oldest of the lot, the no offspring, no future story. The no offspring, no future story. This one might not be that common for many of us, but in many traditional cultures, this is still a major story that brings immense pressure. Singleness is to be absolutely avoided because with marriage, without marriage, there'll be no children. And that is the real tragedy in this story. Having children is needed in this story to secure your future so that you won't be a burden to society, so that someone will take care of you in old age. 
Additionally, the value of woman has, was seen in her ability to give birth, to keep their family inheritance, to keep the family land, to keep the family business, and continue the family legacy and lineage. Some of you have been made to feel absolutely horrible that you're not able to provide your parents with grandchildren. And then we've got the marriage's ultimate story. The marriage's ultimate story is embedded in so many traditional cultures the world over. People are explicitly told or implicitly made to believe that they only matter and that life only begins when they get married. Then they are considered grown-ups. Until that point, you're going to be treated like a junior member of society and a junior member of your community and family. You'll live in this limbo. And this is a major story that most of us have internalized, and it has shaped our social and moral imagination. And to quote Charlotte from The Great Pride and Prejudice, I have no money and no prospects. I'm already a burden to my parents, and I'm frightened. <laughs> Marriage has been placed as the thing. And so some singles can idolize marriage and, and, and treat it as the ultimate goal of their lives. And, and, and when you do get married, you get stuck in, in striving for the idolized version of marriage. And you'll be frustrated because you've waited so long for it. And it's never going to be that. It's never going to be everything you hoped it would be. And then, of course, we've got the opposite of this position. And that's the meaningless sex story. We've covered this last week, and we're going to continue to cover it over the next few weeks. But this is essentially the story of the hookup culture that has been evolving for decades since the sexual revolution. It says that sex is simply play for adults, and that all that is required is consent from the partner or person or the persons. Freud and Alfred Kinsey are the apostles and prophets of uh, this movement, and they built the foundations to this story. They say that sex is an appetite like no other. Celibacy is, is seen as dangerous because sex is just a drive and a desire that must be met. It needs to be met. Celibacy is a form of rep repression. And, and any cultural norms that place boundaries are oppressive. It's essentially part of the, wi the wider shifts in Western thought about what it means to be a person or an authentic self. Jonathan Grant, he puts it like this. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is conform to some moral code that is imposed upon us from the outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It's deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our true, unique identity. If our sex drive is part of our inner self, we cannot say no to it. That would mean being inauthentic and would not lead to a happy and fulfilled life. Self-control is out. Self-expression is in. Instead of having the complications of marriage and relationships, focus on your career. Focus on the things that make you happy. Pursue your goals and then use whatever tools and opportunities the modern world has provided in order to meet your sexual needs. The thought here on marriage, Eddie Kant says it like this, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together that you didn't even have when you were apart, when you were on your own. So why bother? It's legalized slavery, oppression, and prostitution. 
best time to be alive. I can do whatever I want, sleep with as many people as I want, and never commit, and nobody will ever require anything from me. And although this sounds like the loudest story out there, there's arguably one more popular story. And it takes the underlying elements of this, but it adds some romance. It's the serial monogamy story. This story is the new theme of romantic comedies as portrayed by Hugh Grant in Four Weddings and a Funeral at the climax. Spoiler alert, if you've seen the movie, you'll remember the moment. He turns to Annie McDowell and he says to her, let me ask you one thing. Do you think, after we've spent lots more time together, you might agree not to marry me? And do you think not being married to me might maybe be something you'd consider doing for the rest of your life? To which Andy responds, I do. <laughs> the serial monogamy story, I'll define that phrase in a moment, but from the romantic poets to pop ballads to Hollywood, we've all been taught from a young age that we all have one person out there who is our other half, who we can look into their eyes like Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire and say, you complete me. And I've definitely seen that there are lots of unhelpful notions in church circles around the one. And I want to emphasize that this is not a biblical idea. This is not a Christian belief. This is a cultural belief. It puts ridiculous pressure on another human being, a pressure that will ultimately crush them because they aren't meant to bear it. This idolatry of the soulmate, God has one person for me, I'm waiting on his sovereign timing and it'll all just come together perfectly. It's not the way life works and this mentality can ruin a marriage. For a single person, that's like purgatory. I'm waiting for another soul to free me. And here's my point. Huge swaths of our culture have a belief that multiple partners at the same time is wrong and that being with one person is praiseworthy, but this does not need to be in marriage. In fact, marriage should be ended when the passionate, fiery, unquenchable love and romance dies because then you're clearly married the wrong person. He or she is not the one. Bottom line is this, when the relationship no longer fulfills your, your needs, your feelings, your authentic self is crying out, I'm over this, well then you should move on to the next monogamous relationship. The goal here is not to remain in a state of singleness because that's not what we're here for, we're in hot pursuit of our soulmate. Hmm. Now these are the various stories that are floating around our modern culture. And of course there are others, and several parts of these stories can kind of blend into each other, right? But we've heard them. We've believed them. We've sung them because we hear them on our playlists every single day. We've watched them in the cinema, and we still watch them on Netflix. We've judged our relationships based on these metrics. We've evaluated our lives and our identities on these plumb lines. So what it means is that any question you have around singleness, celibacy, and dating must be answered with a much bigger question. What am I doing on earth? What am I doing on earth? It all comes back to which story about the world and life and human existence and purpose you are believing and living in. Are you believing the prophets and the apostles of the modern self? 
Or are you believing Jesus and his teachings and his apostles and his prophets? Let's get into the Jesus story. We're going to use as our primary text, a text that's been used. Um, uh, it's a surprising set of verses, I must admit. When I looked them over the first time, I was like, oh, let's preach from this one. Um, but it's a passage that we looked at last week, and we're going to look at it a few more times throughout this series. I'm, I'm going to read from Matthew 19, 3 to 12. And I have a different translation to the one on the screen, and it's purposeful. Okay. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test them. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, he said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, well, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this teaching but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Your version reads slightly different at the end. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are others who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So so these Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they've got a question about marriage and divorce. And Jesus is like, oh, well, let's talk about eunuchs. And if you can live like one for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, do it. Can you receive it? Can you accept this? The Bible offers immediate hope. Because it has a theology of singleness. Jesus, God in the flesh, has instituted two options for us, marriage and singleness. And if you're single, there is hope. God has not forgotten you or left you out. Jesus and and Paul both speak through their living examples and through their teachings. They both speak to the absolute validity of singleness. And in many ways, the preferable nature of it despite how some of us may feel or what we have been told and taught. Don't rush past the fact that Jesus Christ himself was single. He was fully man, able to sympathize with us in every way. The greatest man that ever lived chose not to marry. And he was a fully functioning, deeply fulfilled, joyful human being. Jesus proved that you do not have to be married to be fulfilled or to have an amazing social life, an impact, and an influence. Paul, the greatest missionary that ever lived, seems to have been seized with this vision of Jesus. And that even though he was aware of horizontal relationships, his mates like Peter, they were all married. He seemed to have this amazing pull, this upward calling, this upward pull toward this upward call. 
It wasn't a harsh denial, but he speaks of, of learning the secret of being uncontent, whatever the circumstances he finds himself in. Elsewhere, he talks about godliness with contentment being a great goal. Why is this so revolutionary? Why is this such a, a radical stance for 2,000 years ago and for today? Why is this so revolutionary? Single people were welcomed in the church of Jesus. Single people were welcomed in the church of Jesus. This was completely countercultural in the Roman Jewish cultures of the first century. In fact, in the Roman culture, you had no status without a spouse. And unlike other religions then and now, we as Christ followers, through the teachings of Christ, we don't have this eschatological vision of marriage, meaning marriage isn't eternal. Oh, you better pick well, because a billion years from now, <laughs> yeah. The Bible says, until death do us part. And then there's the resurrection life, where we're not married. But let's get back to our text and our eunuchs. If you can live like one for the kingdom of heaven, do it. Can you accept this? This isn't a call to self-mutilization. There were three kinds of eunuchs here in this passage. There were the born eunuchs. These are intersex people. These are, it's a general term used for a variety of situations uh, when, when a person is born with the reproductive or, or, or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit into the boxes of female or male. And if you want to hear more about this, not this Wednesday, the following week Wednesday, we're going to touch on it in more, much more depth. And they were made eunuchs. So these were slaves or, or they were made eunuchs for political reasons. And then there were the chosen eunuchs for the sake of serving God. Not physically castrating themselves, but living like eunuchs. Now, this was a revelation. Everybody who heard this would have been like, wait, what? What did he just say? You see, the old covenant prophecies to the people of Israel, they were what? They were land and offspring and generations upon generations upon generations to come from you. Having land and children and a huge family looked like you were living under the blessing of God, right? That's how you knew God loved you. This was the Jewish view at the time. There was no room for eunuchs in that world, right? Celibacy was certainly not admired or, des or desired, but deplored. Marriage was a command. In Deuteronomy, it says those with crushed testicles should, should not participate in covenant worship. Wait, wait, what, what, was, what is Jesus saying now? He's saying the complete opposite. In the Greek view, to be made a eunuch was a distortion of the human form, and they were looked down upon. Castrated men were thought to be effeminate in their patriarchal society. In the Eastern culture, eunuchs were, were created to work in the royal courts because they were castrated as to not interfere with the woman. But then Jesus says this, and, he, and, and he's referencing Isaiah. He's referencing Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will live, endure forever. The eunuch is blessed in his faithfulness to the Lord because he has an eternal inheritance in the presence of God, independent of children or family. The shunned eunuch has been restored. 
So Jesus, Jesus does as Jesus does. He flips everything on its head, right? And the shunned eunuch, the despised eunuch has been instantly redeemed. And now he's a model. He's a supreme example of undistracted service to the Lord. We all know the story of, of Philip and the eunuch, the, the, the Egyptian eunuch who served in the, in the, as a court official. And so this guy's in his chariot. He's riding along in his chariot, but he's, he's got the, the, the Torah and he's got the, the old, you know, he's got Isaiah. And he, he's meditating on the book of Isaiah. And I bet you he reaches this passage and it's terribly confusing to him. And, and you know, and God tells Philip to go and speak to him. And, and Philip jumps up in the chariot with him and they chat and, and Philip gives him the gospel of Jesus and tells him all about the good news. And then the eunuch says, is there anything that would prohibit me from getting baptized? Philip pulls him off the chariot right there in the water, and he baptizes him. You know, he said that, you know, is there anything, thinking of this, is there anything that would prevent me from being baptized? And obviously, he's referring to his, his uniqueness, his uniqueness. And Philip says, no, there is absolutely nothing that will hinder you. There is nothing that will hinder you. Now, I don't know if any of the single people in this church were born eunuchs. I doubt any of you have been made eunuchs, maybe some of you rugby players. But you might be living as if. You're currently living the single life. And this, this message is for you, this part of this message. I want to tell you, singleness is spiritually and morally right. It is not inferior to marriage. God sees both marriage and singleness as good. And, and if, God, if, if it's not with God, neither state is good. If, if you marry the wrong person out of the will of God, it's going to be a miserable journey. If you, if you single and you stray from God, you're going to be miserable. However, if you use your singleness for the glory of God and turn it into a sacred journey, it will be awesome. Jesus is saying, I've got a new covenant, and it's different to the cultural mandate. It's different from the stories of the day that the world would have you believe. The old mandate was to fill the earth, but Jesus is saying, I want you to celebrate your singleness. I want you to see it for the gift that it is, be it either for a period for some or for your life here on earth for others. The central significance of the New Testament is proclaiming the kingdom of God, and it doesn't require marriage, children, or land. The old mandate, as we said, was to fill the earth, to have a full quiver. The New Testament, there is no mandate to have children. The new mandate that, that Jesus gives us is to make spiritual children. That's the great commission of Matthew 28. Proclaiming the gospel doesn't require marriage. Jesus' primary concern wasn't living well in the land, but rather living well in the kingdom being filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Their inheritance, the fruit, the blessing, they're not linked to land and family, but to making disciples and having the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Singleness, singles can have a staggering, breathtaking inheritance in the kingdom of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. It'll bring fruit. What is he getting at? What is Jesus saying? Hey, Jesus, I'm single. I feel like a junior member of the body. Jesus replies, there's an incredible blessing and fruitfulness for you. What, what, is, what is released in singleness that's not in marriage? Verse 11, 
The one who can accept this should accept it. Other translations go the one who, could, who can receive this, can receive that, but it, receive it. But the Greek word here, and I found this fascinating when I was unpacking this, the Greek word here actually means the one who can make room for this should make room for it. The one who can make space for this should make space for this. The one who can take hold of it must take hold of it. You can, you, as a single person, you can make space for things that others can't. And there are four places that you can make space for. And the first is obvious. It's devotion to God himself. God wants you for himself. He wants a relation with you. He wants relational time with you. He's a relational God. It's the reason he made humans in the first place. You're not alone. And hey, for a portion of our lives, and I'm going to look at the youngsters over here, after adolescence, perhaps for some an extended portion of our lives, there's been a time given to us to pursue God. Not as an extension of adolescence, not just to pursue a career or pursue financial stability, not to prepare yourself for marriage, but just so that you can, without distraction, you can devote yourself to Him. Can you get swept up into that vision like Paul, that vision of Jesus like Paul did? There's a special relationship for those who choose Him over horizontal relationships. Hey, and also, if, you, if there are things that you want to explore, if you've got this theological question or a discipleship question, use your singleness to do it. Number two, make a genuine difference in the world. The pockets of margin you have will disappear if marriage or children come along. You have flexibility and freedom to move at will and to respond quickly. Marriage and children, they eat up your margin like nothing else. Statistically, you have more resources. What I'm saying is you're uniquely positioned. Children don't have the autonomy you have, and the elderly don't have the resources or the energy that you have, and married people have a biblical concern for their, their spouse and children, which I'll go into now now. Psychologist Philip Zimbardi, you, you might know him um, and his books, uh, he said back in 2014 that the average person has spent 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours playing video games by the time they turn 21. For now, it would be the average person has been looking at social media for 10,000 hours before they turn 21. Judging by my kids. But did you know that it takes 10,000 hours to become world-class in almost any discipline? It takes 10,000 hours to become world-class, top of the game in any discipline. The world is broken. Put down the remote control and stop swiping. There is so much that needs to be done. And some of us have the gap to step into the need as the hands and feet of Jesus in ways that others can't. You don't need to be older or married or have money to make a difference in the world. The point is not to amass these Instagram travel snaps, but you could be anywhere within the world, anywhere in the world in two days. Literally. The apostles, the apostles would be so upset with you. You know how many times Paul got shipwrecked <laughs> trying to spread the gospel? Is your prayer, God, what can I do for you in this time. I love the fact that so many in our church are doing exactly that and having such an amazing impact on our community and in the world around us. Let's pass it on. Number three, free from distraction. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35. 
I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned with the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is urging people towards singleness for Jesus. But don't spend your time in singleness like in alert mode, like scanning the room for talent and potential. Focus and devote yourself to the Lord, distraction-free. There's a space and a capacity that single people have that married people just don't have. When Tracy and I got married, we used to look at our pre-wedding day hours in the evening particularly and go, what did we do with all that time? And when we had kids, we used to look at those, that, that life and go, what did we do before all the chaos? <laughs> if you can receive this vision, receive it. Number four, know who you are. So many people don't properly know who they are. They're always trying to fit in everywhere. Learn what you truly believe. Don't collapse yourself into selfishness, but, but seek God until you have a deep sense that you're known and that you're loved by God and then know that you're able to move through this world secure in that knowledge. You have a gap to discover your gifts and callings. This is a time to harness your gifts and passions and become who God wants you to be instead of feeling the need to become somebody else for somebody else. To become somebody else to attract the attention of someone else. To become somebody that's society or, or to become somebody that has to climb the social ladder. Rather embrace this. Make space for this. And don't expect anybody on earth to complete you. Your future spouse, if you do marry, will compliment you. But it is God who makes you whole. And if you do marry, yeah. And if you look at, if, if you look at the greatest commandment that was ever given, it's to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and all your mind, and then to love your neighbor as you love. To love your neighbor as you love. One of the most important relationships you will ever have is your relationship with yourself. Cultivate love in that. Doing so does not mean cultivating narcissism or selfishness. Essentially, it means allowing God to love you. Be open and honest. Be kind to yourself in the face of your perceived failures. Here's the game changer question. Will you choose to be single by default or by design? If by default, well, then you'll spend your time stumbling your way through this life. You'll be making this magical list of what you want in a spouse and hoping they discover you on TikTok. If by design, then you'll take life by the horns. You'll explore your dreams. You'll serve your community, all the while intentionally making connections with others. And as I start to land, the band can come up. Come up. I want to say this to the marrieds and the singles. And I hope this message has spoken to all of us. Let's love one another. How can we love one another? Let's encourage one another not to compromise relationally out of loneliness. 
There's nothing worse. Being single and lonely is terrible, but so is being lonely in a terrible marriage. And as my mom's friend Bonnie would say, single blessedness is much better than double cursedness. Stop letting the stories of this day influence your extremely important choices. Abby Smith says this, Scripture says fulfillment, sexual or otherwise, doesn't come by marriage. Fulfillment comes by Christ and His body, our dependent participation, and thus transformation, waiting, watching, and abiding in relentless, relentless love. If you're single, get a vision for your singleness rather than seeing this as something you're subject to as a victim. Have a vision of possibility. If in these unmarried moments of your life, if they're not spent in passionate pursuit of your maker, they'll often be marked with a sense of aimlessness and frustration. Jesus himself used his singleness in devotion to his father who longs to know you more. The church needs you, your gifts, your passions, your energy. The world needs you to bring your best to the worst problems. We need you to get a vision for God and what He wants to do now through your life. Let's remove the myths and the false stories. Let's, we need to counter Freud and Kinsey and popular music and Hollywood. We also need to remove the myth that it's, uh, self-control is only for singles. Married people need self-control as much as single people do. And as a church that can so easily bias toward marriage and family, we need to be a place in this culture of temptation. We need to be a place where singles can thrive. Let's continue to build this community into the new family of God that it's meant to be. We need to foster relationships in our community, having people into our homes, prioritizing connections of all kinds. Let's not idolize marriage. Just like we can celebrate engagements and celebrate uh, babies, we can celebrate the stories of single people. Let's be aware. Remember, we'll all be single before the Lord. This is just for a season. We're all heading towards the marriage supper of the Lamb. Your life doesn't begin the day you meet someone or get married. It begins the day you say yes to Jesus and to the adventure right in front of you, right now, God leading the way. Your life is purposeful now. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I think for the married couples here and, and the families here, please open our eyes to your heart for single people and your, your call and your passion, your love and our role in that. For the singles, Lord, it's no joke. Many are, are really struggling with loneliness and, and not understanding their place and are overwhelmed by the stories of culture and media and the pressures in family and demands. Our Lord God, freshly give us a vision. Now help us to fulfill the call that you've placed on our lives right now, where we are, with what we have. Draw us close to you. Your Holy Spirit is our comforter. Jesus is our best friend and you is our Abba Daddy. We're so grateful that you love each of us 
your awesome God. Amen. Please stand.